But today we're going to talk about the subject of archaeology and biblical reliability. And if you find yourself saying, well, I want to uh, have you teach on something, we have these little uh, uh, Ask Kirby brochures and flyers out there, or you can go on to the website and ask some of those questions, and I'll try to pick up some of the questions over the next couple of weeks to uh, try to answer your questions. But what about this? It seems to me that, first of all, archaeology gives us a great deal of confidence in the historical accuracy of the Bible. Now, we don't want to overplay it. Just because the Bible is historically accurate doesn't necessarily prove its inspiration, but it certainly sets aside all the arguments used against the Bible. And so this is a very helpful, uh, if you will, tool that I'm going to give you to begin to answer questions you might run into if you're involved in sharing your faith with your friends co-workers, neighbors, or whatever, because you hear people say, well, there are all these errors in the Bible. Of course, the quickest thing to say is, can you name one? Most of the time, they don't come up with any of them. But okay, this is going to give you some confidence in sharing your faith. But I think it gives you some confidence as well and helping you to realize that we are in an incredibly unprecedented times in terms of archaeology in for a couple of reasons. First of all, because there's been a tremendous tremendous amount of peace in Israel. Now, we did have the Hamas rockets, and a little bit later in this presentation, I'm going to talk about how it's kind of interrupted some of the archaeology being done at Tel Lakish. But in most places, we have been able to actually dig down and find all sorts of archaeological finds. So first of all, we have over the last couple of years had a tremendous number of archaeological finds. And as you see in the outline, I'm going to talk about some of the most recent ones at the end. Number two, in addition to having so many archaeological finds, we have the new technology. And when we talk about this ring that has the name Pontius Pilate on it, the ring was found in the late 60s, but only now with this new technology can we see what was on the ring. So a lot of good reasons for us to believe that this is, I think, a time where we have even more confidence in biblical historical accuracy than ever before. Let's, if we can, then start with just a couple of quotes. I will only give you three in the interest of time, but one comes from Dr. William Albright. Um, William Albright is an eminent archaeologist. Uh, if you've ever been to Israel and gone to the Garden Tomb, a pastor was mentioning that today, as you come out of the Garden Tomb and go to your right, you go right by the William Albright Institute, um, I'm sure that Catherine knows where that is, since she spent a month there at uh, the Garden Tomb as a guide. And William Albright said, There can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Bible. Uh, certainly a very secular archaeologist, but nevertheless has to admit that the Bible certainly has been verified by historical accuracy. Let me go to Millar Burroughs. He was a professor of archaeology at Yale University. And he said that archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. More than one archaeologist has found his respect for the Bible increased by the experience of excavation at Palestine. And then just one more quote. This one comes from Nelson Gluck, who is Jewish. And it is interesting to see the number of these, most of them tend to be more secular Jews who do archaeology because they just want to know the history of Israel. But they also have to begrudgingly admit this. 
It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. So let's, if we can, go back to the 20th century. What was the most significant archaeological find in the 20th century? And most people think that that would be the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, a young Bedouin boy was just throwing rocks, and he threw one into a cave and heard this chink. And so he climbed up there and found this vase, and out of it were these scrolls. And this is perhaps the longest of the scrolls. found 800 different fragments, but this is what's called the Isaiah Scroll. Now, if you go to Israel and you go to the Israeli Museum, you can actually see this stretched out in this very special case. If you say, well, I'm not making my way to Israel anytime soon. If you go to Washington, D.C., at the Museum of the Bible, they have a perfect reconstruction of this. Matter of fact, one of the other guests I'm going to have on tomorrow is the curator of the Museum of the Bible, in case you'd like to listen in. He'll be on at 1.30. Uh, Jay Warner Ronis will be on at 2 o'clock. But nevertheless, you can actually see uh, a reconstruction of that and some other archaeological finds. And as a result, why is the Dead Sea Scrolls so significant? Well, first of all, it helps us understand a great deal about the culture of the time of Jesus. This was put together by what were called the Essenes. They were over there uh, in a place called Qumran, not too far from Masada. And so we know a great deal about them because this scroll, no doubt, probably is dated at about 100 B.C., before the time of Christ. Well, that now helps us answer another question about Old Testament transmission. Because, as you can see on the left hand here, they're talking about the Masoretic Version. Turns out that the oldest copy we had of the Old Testament up until this time was found in a monastery about 900 A.D. These were things that were copied, interestingly enough, by Jewish scribes, the Masoretic uh, tradition. And so now we can go back a thousand years and see how accurate was the transmission. Because the argument has always been that we actually have mistakes through the transmission. It's the telephone game. Imagine I come up to Christy and I whisper in her ear and then she whispers to her mom and, you know, as eventually gets back there, it doesn't even have any close uh, understanding of what I would have said. And so we recognize that since we don't have photocopies and they're making copies of copies of copies, how accurate were they? Well, this one is Isaiah 9.5, but if you go to Isaiah 53, one of the most uh, clear explanations you can compare the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can see that there's virtually no change, other than in spelling. Uh, some of the spelling changed, and we see this in English. You know, color used to be spelled C-O-L-O-U-R. Matter of fact, if you go to a British uh, country, uh, for example, Great Britain, or you go to some of the British Isles or a number of places, they still do that. So you can see that sometimes letters change because of spelling. But other than that, you can see just an incredible, accurate transmission of the time. Moreover, having the Dead Sea Scrolls also answers something else. One of the other booklets, I forgot to bring it today, but we gave that a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the whole idea of messianic prophecy. Because the argument used to come from the skeptics, oh yeah, well, you know, the reason it looks like Jesus fulfilled all of these uh, ma um, messianic prophecies is because they were changed later on. 
Really? You're saying that Jewish people who rejected the Messiah changed the script in order to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Does that make any sense? None. Absolutely none. But now we actually have copies written down before the time of Christ in our hands to see how he fulfilled those in terms of Messianic prophecy. Well, enough of that. Let's get on to some of these others. If you were, again, a Christian in the 19th century, you have a big problem. Because it turns out that we could see throughout the um, Old Testament statements about the Hittites. It's interesting how that slid that down. It's not that on the screen. But nevertheless, um, there was a real question as to whether or not there was a Hittite nation. It's uh, represented and actually referenced at least 100 plus times in the Old Testament. And so this was an example, they thought, of what was called higher criticism out of Germany, saying that, well, this must have been a myth or a legend. And so by the turn of the next, that century, the 20th century, by two, by 1900, we still had no evidence of a Hittite nation. Uh, the International Society of Archaeologists even said this must have been an error or an exaggeration. Until 1902, Hugo Winkler doing an excavation in an ancient city in Turkey discovered 10,000 clay tablets. If you're taking some notes, every once in a while I give you a verse that documents that. And the verse that talks about the Hittites, you can see in Joshua 11 and many other passages. And now we have an ability to study the Hittite nation. You can go to major universities and study the Hittite language as the Semitic language. And so all the skeptics that said the Bible was wrong, turns out that the Bible was right and the skeptics were wrong. Okay, let's move on. Some of you have heard this presentation before, so I've added a lot of new material, and some of that is this. Uh, in 1830, Robert Taylor found this 15-inch cylinder has 500 different lines of text. Okay, what about that? Well, as people began to translate that, um, they began to realize that there's a whole section, actually, that is recording Sennacherib. We're going to come back to the name Sennacherib a little bit later. But it's the stories of Sennacherib actually laying siege to some of the Jewish cities during the reign of King Hezekiah. And you can read about that in Second Chronicles 32, verses 1 and following. And so what you see is that we have now independent archaeological and historical verification for what is recorded in Second Chronicles. Pretty helpful. Let's look at another one that I've added to this presentation, and that would be what's called the Cyrus Cylinder. Horzmud Rassam, he found this cylinder in 1879. As again, they translated it, they realized that this was a recording that was commissioned by King Cyrus II of Persia. Persia is present-day Iran in Iraq, primarily Iran, and it describes how the temple in Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And so again, we have the story, uh, which of course you can read about as well in the book of Nehemiah and other passages and in Ezra, but I give you Ezra 1, 1 through 11, describes all of that. So again, we have independent archaeological evidence of the rebuilding of the temple uh, from one of these secular sources. 
Here's one of the more interesting ones. And when I had a professor of Old Testament, in fact, the chairman of the Old Testament department, uh, Bob Chisholm, in my studio the other day, uh, when we were talking about archaeology, uh, the example he used was this one. So I thought he thought this was significant. So I did as well. It turns out that, again, if you go to the higher critical school, which would be taught maybe at SMU's Divinity School or Yale's Divinity School or Union Theological Seminary, would be that really this idea that David and Saul were historical characters, nah. This was just a story that was brought of of trying to describe a good King David and a bad King Saul. And so they argue that we have no archaeological evidence that King David ever existed. So if you want to believe that David existed, you want to believe that he killed Goliath, and you want to believe that he fought these wars, fine, but it's just all a myth. Until 1993. And they did uh, um, actual uh, investigations in what's called Tel Don. Tel is actually kind of a covering of various um, civilizations. Oftentimes when a particular city would uh, be overrun or destroyed, they would just build it on the top of the other. So you have these tells around Israel. And Tel Dan was not actually uh, excavated until 1993. Why? Because it's on the border between Israel and Syria, which is one of the reasons why archaeology doesn't always flourish. Can you imagine all the tension between Syria and Israel? Of course, since then, we've even had ISIS. But you can imagine why it's just it's, it's a little bit uh, difficult to do archaeological investigation in some of these essentially war zones. But there was a time of peace in which they found this inscription and Abraham Biron uh, discovered that it talks about this Israeli king who comes from the house of David. And so this now became the first, we have others, archaeological verification of King David and of the house of David. So I give you a link to 1 Kings 12, which talks about not just David, but the house of David. So again, the skeptics always said the Bible was wrong when it talked about David. But I think we have a conclusion that what? The Bible was right and the skeptics were wrong. Let's take a few more. Let's now move over to the Moabites. You know, you read about all the ites, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Moabites. Well, this is now the Moabites. And they found in 1868 this black stone. It is the recording of Misha, who was the king of Moab. And he, in the describing of this, also documents the kings that were next door, and those would be one king, Omri, you can read about him in 1 Kings 16, and then also his son Ahab in 2 Kings 3. And so again, we have independent archaeological uh, verification of some of the Hebrew kings in First and 2 Kings. Um, If you've ever gone to Israel, uh, there are tours that they will take you through. Um, You can see there's water there, so you have to be willing to get your feet wet because this is Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, Hezekiah's Tunnel, again, is described. We're going to hear a lot about King Hezekiah, all the good things he did. But King Hezekiah actually cut through this uh, stone a very important water channel. And it was a channel that went from the spring of Gishon to the pool of Siloam. 
And so you have that described in Second Chronicles 32. And it gives you a little bit of an idea of how that was cut through the rock there in the city of David. So we again see uh, various things described in the Bible easily verified. Now, we sort of knew it was there, but again, you have to recognize that until you had some of the wars, 1967 war uh, and some of those, you did not have various opportunities to go there because the Arabs controlled that land. So we live in this incredible opportunity to actually investigate what is under the temple. We're going to look at some of that in just a minute. What is under the city of David and what is all over Israel. And as I've said before, it seems like every time a shovel goes into the dirt there in Israel, we have further verification of its historical accuracy. Let's move from uh, Jerusalem for just a minute and go up the Jezreel Valley to Megiddo. Now, Megiddo shows up quite a bit in the Old Testament, and there again is this huge tell to give you an idea of how high this is, because one city is built on another city is built on another city. This has changed hands. I think Gary Frazier said it was like 30, 35 times. So this has been a, a war zone. To get to this picture that I just took with my camera, we're already walking up this pretty large hill, and then just to actually cut some steps in there to get to the very top. So there's just an enormous amount of history underneath all of this in Megiddo. And so I thought I'd use this piece that came out in Breakpoint. Uh, John Stone Street's a good friend, interestingly enough, uh, did this a couple of years ago about finding Naboth's vineyard, and they found that in Megiddo. Two individuals, the University of Haifa, University of Evansville, are in the Jezreel Valley where Megiddo is, found all sorts of wine presses and olive presses in this particular area. And according to their story and their article um, in the Biblical Archaeological Review, they are convinced that they have found the vineyard of Naboth. You may say, okay, I don't remember the story. Well, remember in 1 Kings, verse 21, you have the king Ahab and his sweet wife was what? Jezebel, right? And remember, Ahab looks out and sees this vineyard and says, ooh, I want that vineyard. Okay, what price? And Naboth says, I'm not selling. So Ahab comes back and he's crying. He's got his feelings hurt. And, you know, he's, he's got to get uh, his uh, uh, comfort dogs and all sorts of things, make him feel better. And Jezebel says, well, i got a better idea. Just go get him killed and then you get the vineyard. And so this is now the vineyard that we have now identified that we read about in 1 Kings 21. Don't you love all the history here? Let's take another one from our good friends at um, uh, Breakpoint. And this one... Got to have at least one poo-poo joke, so that's the case. No poo-pooing biblical history. The Lachish Latrine. What? Okay, this one takes us now to 2 Kings chapter 10. Now, the archaeologists um, with what is called the Israeli Antiquities Authority. So these are actually Jewish people primarily, although we do have a number of individuals over the years that are Christians who do some of the archaeological digs. And some of the college students and some of these Christian universities can actually go over there. But these actually were Jewish archaeologists in Tel Lachish. By the way, you go, if you go to the Museum of the Bible, they have a wonderful video about Tel Lachish. But Tel Lachish is now south of um, Israel, south of, um, excuse me, south of Jerusalem, and it's in the Negev Desert. 
And it's a place where doing archaeological investigation is a little more high risk because it's closer to Gaza. And so when Hamas launches those rockets, sometimes they land nearby. So it has been a place where you haven't been able to do consistent archaeological investigation because of the rockets that Hamas have launched from Gaza. But nevertheless, in Tel Lakish, they actually came upon an ancient toilet. What does that mean? The context, you need to go back and read in 2 Kings chapter 10, because it tells us again, King Hezekiah, which was a good king, did what? Well, he removed the high places of Baal worship. He smashed the sacred stones of Baal worship, and he cut down what were called the Asherah poles. But more than that, it also goes on to explain that he demolished the pillar of Baal and destroyed the temple of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. He recognized that tearing down these poles and tearing down these storms, if when I leave or when I die, it's quite possible they would come back again which, as we unfortunately find in Scripture, happened. And so he says, I know one way to completely desecrate the temple of Baal. I'm going to turn it into a public restroom. (laughs) And so they actually have found how this old temple that was destroyed of Baal was turned into a public restroom. And I think it's, you know, kind of a bizarre little look, but it just reminds us again that even some things that seem kind of puzzling uh, turned the temple of Baal into a latrine. We have archaeological evidence even of something as crazy as that. Let's move now to the New Testament for just a minute. And if you've ever gone to Israel, usually the first place they take you is to go up the kind of the seaboard there to Caesarea. And if you look at this, this doesn't look very Jewish. It looks very Roman. And that was by intention. Caesarea was the outpost for the Romans. Uh, Many times we believe that Pontius Pilate and most of the Roman garrison stayed there, but they would make their way to Jerusalem sometimes when there were uh, various kinds of festivals and things like that. But it was made to feel like Rome so that Roman soldiers wouldn't feel so homesick. They built a special harbor there, and this was a place where ultimately, if we look at the scriptures, it shows up time and time again. Who shows up in uh, Caesarea? Well, the three Ps, Paul, Peter, and Philip. At different times, each one of them show up there. Of course, Paul spends a lot of time there because he's in prison because of King Agrippa and Felix. You might remember those stories. Why is Peter there? Well, he is actually sharing the gospel with uh, one of the Roman citizens there. And so you have all sorts of things going on. But nevertheless, Caesarea uh, was uncovered under the sand. And in 1961, an Italian dig there discovered a Latin inscription bearing the name Pontius Pilate. Now, we do have some historical evidence of Pontius Pilate, but nothing tying him back necessarily to this particular area. And so this is actually a cast, a plaster cast that is, appears right there in Caesarea. If you've ever been there, you've seen that. Or if you go to the Israeli Museum, you can actually see that. So that was now the first independent archaeological or historical verification of Pontius Pilate being of the individual, the procurator at the time of the death of Jesus. Pretty striking, isn't it? Let's take some others. More recently, um, there was a discovery of a house in Nazareth, a first century house. Why was that significant? 
Well, again, our liberal friends that teach in some of these liberal seminaries said that, well, Jesus probably just never really existed. Because it tells a story about Jesus growing up in Nazareth, and Nazareth didn't exist in the first century. End of discussion. First of all, let me say that even secular historians, I've documented this before on a radio program, who couldn't possibly agree that there's a God, couldn't even agree with some of the theological ideas we hold to say, you know, this is pretty awful. Uh, you have to establish the fact that there was a person named Jesus that existed. We have too many uh, references both in the Bible and outside the Bible that says it exists. But nevertheless, you've had some people say, no, this story had to be wrong because there was no city, no town in Nazareth in the first century, until they find a home, and here it is, that was obviously dated to the first century. Now, some Christians have said, well, this is probably the house of Jesus. Well, I don't know about that. You know, is that the house of Joseph and Mary? I think that's a long shot. But if nothing else, it shows that we have a house in the first century in Nazareth. And the story that we read in the Gospel of Luke and other Gospels, obviously, is historically accurate. Which brings me to Luke. If there's any been any writer in the New Testament that has been attacked the most, it is Luke. Because Luke writes the Gospel of Luke. What else does he write? The book of Acts. So if you can take down Luke, uh, especially since he makes so many statements that can be historically verified or falsified, then you can really raise questions about the historical accuracy of the New Testament. With me on this? Now, in my little booklet, I go into uh, one in the gospel because there was the argument for many years that Luke in Luke 3 says that uh, Licinius was the Tetrarch of Abilene. Well, there is a Tetrarch, but he's not an Abilene, so obviously this was a mistake that he made. No, it turns out we found other historical evidence to say there were two people by the name of Licinius, and indeed we have historical evidence that his gospel account uh, there is right. But much more of what Luke does is actually written in the book of Acts. And so that's why I thought I would mention this book by Colin Hermer, The Book of Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History. The other day I was mentioning it to a group and some people writing down and said, no, you don't really want to get the book. I mean, you can't get it on Amazon, but this is a, this is the kind of books we read so you don't have to read them. This is a really scholarly book. If you have trouble with insomnia, okay, get the book, put it by your uh, nightstand, two pages in it, you're done because it is a really difficult to read book. But nevertheless, let me just give you the summary. And that is, he is a classical scholar and historian, and he is within painstaking detail, and I do mean painstaking detail, identifies 84 different facts in the latter chapters of the book of Acts. This is when Paul's engaged in his missionary journeys and all sorts of stuff, and all of those have been confirmed in exquisite detail, uh, both historical and archaeological research. Uh, it's nautical details, names of gods, designation of magistrates, proper names and titles. In every single case, Luke is accurate. And that should give you just an incredible amount of confidence when you talk about the amount of detail that Luke puts into those latter chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, this is why, again, if you want to challenge Luke, Give yourself a chance, but it's going to be tough sledding because he has been vindicated time and time again. Okay, just before we end, 
Everybody still with me? I know archaeology can be a little boring, but at the same time, I'm hoping it's at least encouraging. Let me talk about some of the recent archaeological discoveries. And a lot of this comes from a very good article that appeared in Christianity Today. So if you'd like to read that, uh, Gordon Govier, uh, he is a radio journalist, and I've worked with him for years. He's done different kinds of radio broadcasts. He's done interviews with me. And he has had just kind of as a hobby, as an individual that is one of the best journalist. I think he even worked for UPI for a while. But nevertheless, he works now in other areas of documenting some of, in this case, the top 10 discoveries of 2018. You can find one top 10 discoveries of 2015. I haven't seen him do one recently, in part because we've had this thing called the pandemic and the lockdown. So last year wasn't as good as other years. But let me pick out just a few of those to illustrate not all 10, but a couple. One of those is this Semitic abecedary. And you go, what in the world is that and why would I care? Well, it turns out that this was a piece of limestone discovered in the Nile area, West Bank. And it really answers the questions the liberals have had. Because the argument always was, Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible. Why? Because they didn't have language. Now, we did, for the exam class, take you to a movie. Remember this? Uh, where it talked about Proto-Hebraic. Matter of fact, the person that did those movies grabbed me at NRB and said, I got another movie coming out, so I'm going to do an interview and I'll find out if it's one we want to go to. Now, some of his go very long, but this one seems like it would be even more interesting than that. But he actually and others have documented the fact that Moses was educated where? Well, the best school of the ancient world. And Moses demonstrates, I think, in more than one place where he could write. But now we can actually see that when we look at this, this gives you kind of the ABC of this developing what they called proto-Hebraic language. That not only was Moses writing, but there were other people at the time that were writing. And it, I think, fulfills what we see in Exodus 24, verse 4, that Moses wrote down everything the Lord said. And he wasn't the only one using a Semitic language at the time. And so, again, that's a really significant find. Most people don't know about it. This one still makes me laugh. How ISIS accidentally corroborates the Bible. How in the world did that happen? Well, it turns out that when ISIS took over Mosul, which is the ancient city of Nineveh, they began to destroy and look for various archaeological pieces of antiquity because they could sell them on the black market and fund ISIS. So while they were there, they demolished the tomb of Jonah. Now, is that the actual tomb of Jonah? I'm not so sure. It's the traditional site. If you go to Israel, they say, this is the traditional site of fill-in-the-blank. And sometimes you go, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was. But nevertheless, they destroyed the tomb, which, of course, no one living there would have done so. And they were digging tunnels. And so when then they were destroyed and we were to move all of ISIS out of Mosul, the archaeologists returned and they found that they had accidentally uncovered an Assyrian palace in the city of Nineveh. And as a result, this comes from the Iraqi magazine, they found inscriptions that perfectly matched the biblical order. Sargon, Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, Menro mentioned Sennacherib just a minute ago. And so they gave us complete archaeological and now historical verification for the chronologies that we read in Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles and other passages. A couple others real quickly. Let's go back to Jerusalem for just a minute. 
And in this case, um, where the western wall is and what's called the Temple Mount, they've been digging through some of the mortar. And as they do that so they can replace it, they're coming across some of these clay seals. This one is kind of intriguing because this seal comes from about 2,700 years ago in the Western Wall. And it bears the inscription, belonging to the governor of the city, which supports the biblical record because the Bible talks about the fact that there were governors in the city of Jerusalem 2,700 years ago. And it even gives us, and we can learn about some of this in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, the names of some of the governors. And so this particular seal was actually given in a ceremony about a year, I guess about two years ago, to the mayor of Jerusalem, one of the clay seals. So again, an independent verification for the idea that there were governors in Jerusalem. But even more significant was this seal. Because this one seems to say... Um, Isaiah the prophet. And now there is one letter missing, so you know we're filling in the gap, but it does seem to be um, talking about Isaiah the prophet. Uh, who do we read about most in the Old Testament? Who's one of the major prophets in the Old Testament? That would be Isaiah. And we find it at a layer where we found other seals that talk about King Hezekiah of Judah, and actually in the scriptures you see King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah are mentioned 17 times together. So it seems like we may have a seal that talks about Isaiah the prophet. Well, one of the last ones is an illustration of how in some cases we have some of these archaeological finds, but we can't read them, but the new technology allows us to do so. And it turns out that they have found a ring that has the name Pontius Pilate. It was found in the Herodium, which, let me just go to the next part, was actually a desert palace developed by Herod out away from Bethlehem. And it actually, now because of this technology, we can read the name Pontius Pilate on the ring. Now, was this a ring worn by Pontius Pilate? Probably not. It was used by some Roman prefect or someone in that region. And you might say, well, why would he have a ring that says Pontius Pilate? Number one, to show that he has the seal of the Roman Empire. And number two, to actually deal with documents. Because in that day, what you would do is you would write out a document, you would seal it up, you would then use some candle wax, and you would then put the impression on there, and that would have the impression of Pontius Pilate. A person seeing that and opening it would know that that was an official record, and that was certainly the case. So those are just a couple of the archaeological finds, but I thought I'd end with my own personal story, just real quickly, and then we'll um, um, bring uh, Parker back up for this. But uh, one of the things that uh, we have done in the past, in addition to going to Israel, is going to Greece. Now, um, Ian's going to Greece next week, so maybe he'll come back with a few more slides. But when we went a few years ago, and by the way, we are going to Greece, um, Point of View is going to Greece next fall. Not this coming fall, but next fall. You get to go to Athens and Corinth and Philippi and uh, Berea and all sorts of places. When the bus pulls up to Corinth, I'm looking at all of these pillars and I'm thinking, okay, that's where we're headed. But our tour director takes us down this like goat path and I'm going, where are we going? It's all over there. We're going down in just seemingly nowhere. We couldn't figure it out. And what it was was this. He wanted to show us the archaeological evidence of Erastus. 
Now this, in, in the uh, late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, was a problem. Because if you read in the book of Acts, and again, this is one of those questions about Luke, Paul refers to a person in Corinth by the name of Erastus, who was a city treasurer. Well, he was a person of great standing in the community, and he probably was part of the social elite. So it wasn't just that Paul was actually bringing to faith people that were slaves or commoners, but even some of those people in the highest positions in Corinth were actually coming as well, and yet there was not a shred of any kind of historical evidence of a man by the name of Erastus in Corinth. So is that an error that Luke made? Because you can look in Acts 19, he's pretty significant because this is one place where Paul talks about the fact that having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy, we know who he is, and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. So anyway, this tour director's taking us down and going, where are we going and he takes us down. Unfortunately, that jumped right in the middle of it. That's not on my screen. But anyway, in 1929, they go down to a particular area where there was a theater and a plaza. And as a result, what you can see, if you have uh, ability to do so, is E-R-A-S-T-U-S, Erastus. And so we have, again, archaeological evidence now, once again, that Luke was right, the Bible was right, and the skeptics were wrong. So, if nothing else, I hope that this has really increased your confidence in the Scriptures. And Fred, thank you for asking about archaeology. Uh, next week, we'll talk about why do we have so many details in the Old Testament? What's that all about? And maybe we can learn a little bit more about why God gave such specific and detailed instructions in everything from building the tabernacle, ultimately the temple, such details in terms of the law, and what we maybe can learn about that. With that, let me turn it back to Parker.